mentioned before, every verse of Proverbs is a sermon. Every half verse practically is a sermon. And so it's uh, one of the things is what not to, to teach, what to leave off uh, as you go through in a survey way as we're going through here. But I want us to go back to chapter 6 to another portion of Scripture that we should take heed of, and that's found in verse 12. Let's look there together, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 12. A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a forward mouth, and the word forward there is perverse. He winketh with his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teacheth with his fingers, he makes gestures and all kinds of insinuations. You've seen that kind of person, how they act, their body language they use to to aid in their deception and in their wickedness. Forwardness or perverseness is in his heart. That's why it's in his mouth, isn't it? Where does it start? It starts in the heart before it ever gets to the mouth or to the motions or the feet or the hands. Forwardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Of course he does. These are all byproducts of the forwardness, the perverseness of his heart. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. The, these six, and that reminds us also of a verse, he that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. And again, the scripture says here, he shall suddenly be broken and that without remedy. These six things doth the Lord hate. Now, our uh, antennas ought to go up when the Holy Spirit says, here, I'm pointing, God hates these things. That ought to get our attention. And so we, we listen very attentively and say, Lord, teach us here what you have for us. Yea, but when he comes back with this Holy Spirit-inspired emphasis, seven are an abomination to him. What does that mean? Six things he hates, but seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Well, all sin is sinful. There's no little sins and big sins. There's no little white lies and big black lies. That's all designations by, by humans. Now, some sin has deeper ramifications and may scar deeper, and the consequences may be more far-reaching. But the, the, the least... Uh, high look toward the Lord or a refusal to obey the Lord is just as bad as as murder or anything that we could look at. And so why is it then that the Holy Spirit gives this parenthesis of sin and then goes back and makes a special emphasis on the one? Well, usually uh, the open sins, the sins of the flesh, we put at the top of the list. If you and I were to make a list as in the early days and medieval times and even going back to the early church, some refer to the seven deadly sins. Uh, we might, in, in no doubt, put at the top of the list those visible, open sins of the flesh. And somewhere along the line, the sins of the spirit, which are unseen and maybe not be able to be diagnosed by those looking on, would be far down on the list. But the Bible gives us a view of all things from God's perspective. Aren't you glad of that? Because if it was just mine or yours, we might would put a slant on it. We have to be very careful that we let the Bible speak for itself and uh, we not make the emphasis our own, but to emphasize what God does. God's holiness places him absolutely unwavering 
on the side of right every time and all the time and, un, and on the opposite of all wrong. So if you want to know, sometimes in political seasons, people will say, well, whose side is God on? I can tell you exactly whose side God is on. God is always on the side of the right. The right, of, and we're not talking about the political right or left in the way that they use it. But what is right in the word that he says is right? We don't have to have a, a, a human or societal definition of marriage. And I've read unbelievably where a, a pastor of a Baptist church in our state who decided that he would perform uh, or uh, agree to same-sex marriages, his church disagreed with him, and, and uh, there, so there was some disagreement. But anyway, he, this pastor, in the account that I read in a, in a state Baptist uh, newspaper said that uh, he could see no contradiction in anything of the, the words of our Lord uh, that would contradict uh, the same-sex marriage. And I thought, you know, I bet the, the fourth grade uh, students in our Sunday school across the way could point you to Matthew chapter 19 where the people came and asked the Lord about the woman in the resurrection whose husband would she be? She'd been married several times. You remember they were trying to trip him up, and they'd say, who is she be married to? He says, you're ignorant. You don't know. In heaven, there's neither marriage or giving in marriage. And he's asking about divorcement. You know, can a man, the, the, the teachers tell us that a man can give a bill of divorcement for any cause. And what was our Lord's response? Our Lord, he takes them back to the Garden of Eden, and he says, in the beginning, it was not so. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and so shall they be one flesh. Is that not the Lord Jesus' definition of marriage? If he was going to allow for any other version of that, that would have been a wonderful opportunity for him to settle it once and for all. He, Though he went back to the father's intent and the pattern given to us in the book of Genesis in the first opening chapters. And so... God is on the side of his word, on the side of his own holiness and righteousness, and the opposite of all wrong, whichever direction you want to designate that. But just because we do not visibly see God correcting wrong and judging sin openly and visibly, it does not mean that he is not at work. Some might come to the conclusion that because he doesn't always deal with things openly and immediately that God doesn't care or it's not so bad or that he's changed his mind or some other erroneous conclusion. Remember that every part of God's attributes reflect in everything that he does. So his actions are a result of who he is and what he does. His compassion, his patience, his infinite mercy and grace, his wisdom... All of these things are reflected in what he does and how he speaks and how he decides. Uh, a grieving, distraught, and angry uh, parent, I remember dealing with one time whose uh, son was uh, killed, asked uh, the pastor, and I, I was privy to the situation, where was God when my son was killed? That was the, the grieving, and understandably that grieving parent had questions that, that, that human answers can't answer. You can understand the heart of that parent. But if there was a God in heaven, is the, the, the thought, Why, where was he when my son was killed? To which the, the pastor wisely replied, the same place where he was when his own son was killed. 
He has not moved from where he is in his sovereign place of righteousness and justice and judgment. And the greatest example of God's reaction to wrong, of course, is Calvary. We always point to Calvary. There, the wrath of God against sin and wrong was poured out on his own son to make a way of salvation for those who believe. We have here in Proverbs chapter 6 the insight into our father's attitude toward wickedness. These six things, yea, seven, are an abomination. This is a Hebrew figure of speech, uh, a, a saying, and we might put it in the South, we, have, we use figures of speech all the time, don't we? I mean, our language is peppered with them, our discussions, and you, you'd have to be, uh, have a clear ear. I remember as a little boy listening to my parents, and they would say things, and I would think, that never happens. My mother was a beautician, and she'd make appointments. I'd hear her talk on the phone, and she'd say, if you, if you can't make your appointment, give me a ring. You know, well, immediately in my mind, a gold ring was there. And finally, one day, I remember just saying, nobody ever gives you a ring. And she didn't know what I was talking about. And I, I remember other figures of speech that my parents would use, and they, their, language, their conversations were peppered with them, and they overflow in my own. And, and, and I'm a product of that. But in the South and in other areas as well, we have things that are peculiar to our own area of how to say things. This is a Hebrew expression, a Hebrew figure of speech. And we might say uh, uh, 10 million trillion when we talk about, you know, I wouldn't go there in 10 million trillion years. And we're just giving a, a figure of speech of we're totally against it, would never go to a certain place. Or, uh, you know, there are all kinds of, let me tell you a thing or two. Let me give you a couple of things. We don't literally mean two, do we? Or we want, if we're saying, I, I want to tell you a thing or two. Usually there's a long list that's going to follow. It's not just a thing or two. Now, I just needed to speak to you for a second. Well, that's not true, is it? You're going to, you, nobody can say something in a second. And so I think you get the, the picture. But this is an even more strong, a stronger way of a figure of speech. The, the prophet Amos used this expression with great effect in his opening condemnation against the sins of the nation and the line uh, of fire. In Amos chapter 1, if you, you can read there, we're not going to turn there now, but he uses the same uh, 6, yea, 7, that kind of expression. The expression implies that the list that you're about to give is not exhaustive. The, the, the reason that it changes in number is this is a list, but this is not all there is to it. And each of these things on this late list are filled with other sins that are associated with them. Do you get the picture where hatred, uh, uh, murder is not just a sin in of itself. Hatred, all kinds of things are wrapped up in, in that, that sin of murder. There are not only six things or just six things that God hates. But th these are a list of the characteristics of the fallenness of man. And actually, this goes back, and if you were to ask for a title of the, the lesson today, this lesson would be called The Sins of Satan, because these are the exact areas of Satan's violation, of Satan's fall, and, they, and all of them are an absolute contrast to the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. They do characterize Satan, the deceit, the mimicry, the... Uh, scornfulness, all those things that we see here, and they're the opposite of what we see in our Lord. First of all, we would say, and remember, this is not an exhaustive list. These are just representative of the sins of the heart that lead to other sins that God absolutely hates, yea, they're an abomination to Him. First of all, the Lord hates pride. 
that's not probably what you and I would put at the top of the list that we were making to categorize sins. But I would tell you that all other sins spring in part from the sin of pride. We notice there in verse 17, a proud look. And someone would immediately say, just a look? I mean, a look didn't kill. We, we have a figure of speech, don't we? If looks could kill, the look that I got from that person said spoke volumes. And so we might reason, as the human heart always does, like to reason away, explain away, what's so bad about a look? He didn't stab her. He didn't shoot the gun or whatever it may be. He just looked uh, that way. Well, pride is the father of all sin. A prideful look shows that a person imagines themselves to be much higher or better than the one they're disdaining. There's a great gulf fixed in that person's mind between them and that person. And they show it by their behavior. And it reminds us of the Pharisee praying in the temple. We're invited to a prayer meeting there. Our Lord takes us to a prayer meeting and we hear two people pray. And the, the Pharisees telling the Lord, it was really not a prayer, it was an oratory, it was a recital, a self-recital, where he was telling the Lord how good he was and how thankful he was that he was as good as he was and almost how thankful the Lord ought to be to have such a wonderful servant as he. And I thank you that I'm not like that guy murmuring whatever he's murmuring over there. And then the Holy Spirit tells us what he was murmuring, doesn't he? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just crying out for mercy. And so... He says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this publican. And someone has said, no, he was worse, much worse. Satan cast his evil eye toward the triune Godhead in eons past. At some point in the, in the past, angel, uh, the angel Lucifer, the angel of light, who seems to have had an exalted position uh, among the sons, of the, the sons of the morning, the stars, the, those references to the angelic host, he seems to have had close proximity in his pre-fallen condition to the very presence of the Godhead. And at some point, Lucifer, and we don't fully understand all this except what the Scripture unveils to us, Lucifer looked toward the triune Godhead in all of his glory and planned to exalt himself above that, that he would take a position above the throne of God. Now that's absolutely reprehensible, isn't it? We can't even imagine how anyone could think about exalting themselves above the throne of God. But is that not what we do every time we sin? I know what your word says, but this is my circumstance. This is the way I see it. This is the condition that I'm in. And so I'll decide to do what I want to. Thank you very much. Well, see, it looks in a very different light when we look at it that way. Satan cast his eye toward the, the Godhead. And Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 14 and verse 12 records it for us. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which disweakened the nations? For thou hast said where? In thine heart. The heart is where it all begins. Out of the heart proceeds these things. You have said in your heart, I will. And notice the I wills here. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, above all the other angels. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, higher than any other created being in the sides of the north. Then he goes even farther. It's one thing to say, I'm going to make myself better than all the angels. I will 
Again, you see that I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And the reference there above the, the very throne of God. I will be like the Most High. What a lie Satan told himself and believed. And what a lie he keeps peddling down through the ages. What did he tell Eve? Oh, you're not, there's nothing going to happen to you. He just knows you're going to be like him. You'll become like him. You'll have the same knowledge of good and evil. And Eve didn't know what evil was, did she? Did she need to know? She knew, she knew all she needed to know. You see, Satan always tells us, you need, to un, you need to know more. You live such a sheltered life. You live in a bubble. I've, heard, I've had people say to me, well, Pastor, I don't spend all my time in the church around Christian people. I work in the real world, as if the pastor didn't pastor real people, sheep who are in the real world. Do you think I stand right here from, from Sunday to Sunday? This is, I don't go anywhere but this place right here. Or struggle with my own heart and self and family and you and me and others. And, and, and so uh, it's funny how people think I work in the, uh, the real world. And I, by that they mean I hear bad language and I, I have temptations that, that you don't have. And, and, and I think that's what they mean. That it would be easier to be a Christian if I did what you did and just sat there with the Bible all day long. You could lock yourself in a a tower uh, with no other human being ever came. And you know what you'd have? You'd have yourself in a world of iniquity that could conceive and perform any sin, atrocity known to man with a Bible before you and no other human being or technological influence whatsoever because your heart is there. It's the heart that's desperately wicked. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, God tells them, to the sides of the pit, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shape the kingdoms? And what a description, a veiled description of the sin and the shame and the problems that Satan has brought to earth. In fact, the literal earthquakes and all the, the sin that has come to the, the results of it physically in the earth is a result of, of, of Lucifer's fall and his uh, uh, consequence. Uh, leading the, the, the first couple into to, to the fall of the sin against God. Well, the Lord Jesus looked down from his resplendent throne at the Father's right hand, and in grace and mercy and in tender compassion, at the rebellious, prideful, self-centered men that, that he had made from dust, and he came down to our level. He came and dwelt among us, became one of us, yet without sin, so what a contrast is there between pride and humility. Satan said, I will exalt. What did Jesus say? He thought it of, of no reputation, but came where? Down. Down to us. Down to earth. Down to the form of man. He would change his form into the form of man. Lay aside and limit himself, at least some of his attributes, to some degree when he was in a finite body for that period of time when he was here on earth. What condescension. What humbleness. And that's the one to whom we look, the example of our Lord. See him there before the, the feet of his sinful disciples, washing their feet. Well, the Bible tells us, let, not, let be, nothing be done through strife or vainglory, through argument or vanity. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Well, that's a tall, big, fat horse pill to follow, swallow it. And to think everybody is better than me. Look not every man on his own things or just on his own affairs, but every man also on the things of others. 
Let this mind be in you. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Why? Because he was one in essence. He is equal, co-equal with the Father. He didn't take anything from God by saying that he was the Son of God. He was eternally the Son of God, co-equal. But made himself of no... What he did do, he laid aside his heavenly reputation. Was not his reputation called into question every minute of his life, his birth? questioned his illegitimate birth his blasphemy by calling himself the son of the father and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross wherefore god also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name Well, before exaltation is humiliation. So not only do we see this horrible sin of pride, but notice secondly in the list here in Proverbs chapter 6 that the Lord also hates a deceptive tongue. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 20 verse 16, Thou shalt not bear false witness, the lying tongue, John 8, 44 tells us that Satan is the father of lies, the originator of lies. When he said, did God say, you shall not surely die, was that not a lie? Of course, they they died spiritually immediately and would die eventually. He is the originator of all that's false. And much of what we must do each day is to sift through all of that. We're seekers of truth, studiers of truth, followers of truth. Jesus is the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But daily, momently, moment by moment, we're, we're bombarded with falseness, aren't we? And we have to say, that's not true. We may see something beautifully wrapped and packaged and presented and taught, some talking head on the radio or television or the iPod or read or what all the various ways that stuff comes toward you. And you must daily, moment by moment, compare it with this plumb line. Ever seen a carpenter or, or a mason use his plumb line? As a boy, I used to love to watch them, that chalked you know, string, and they'd put it at one point here and pop it, and they'd saw that line because they wanted it straight. This is the plumb line by which we measure all things. Uh, we, we must have it. Uh, he, Satan stole into the Garden of Eden with the one goal of deceiving mankind and descending. That's why we should be so opposed to deception. And we should be lovers of truth. And we should seek it out like a hound dog in our own lives. Am I presenting myself in a false way? Am Am I doing that which sides with evil or wrong? We ought to be very careful. It's so subtle. And that's probably, of all the areas of our life, that which we have to deal with more on a moment by moment basis, speaking the truth and being the truth and living the truth because our human nature wants to cut corners at every turn. You, whether it's our taxes or how we present ourselves or whether even apologize, sometimes we say, well, if you thought I was wrong. You know, we want to cut the corners. We don't want to own up to the truth. And it's so much a part of our intrinsic nature to protect and to put ourselves higher than what we really are. The basis of, that every, of everything that Satan does is a lie. He is the author of all untruth whether in religion or philosophy or science or politics, we must seek for the truth. And sometimes it's very hard 
to find. That's why we can only be sure of one place where to find it. It's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You cannot divorce God from his word. And that's why when all these debates come up, if you try to explain it away apart from the word of God, you don't have any basis for for any absoluteness. But God has spoken in his word. It's impossible for him to lie. When Caiaphas asked the Lord Jesus in a very snide way, there in Matthew 26, verse 63, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus told him the truth, knowing it would cost him his life. In John 18, verse 38, Pilate tried to play down the importance of Jesus' declarations by asking weekly, what is truth? Isn't that what the, the folks today and the philosophers and the professors and the, those uh, people who, who want to dis, do away with God's word. What is truth anyway? Is that really, that's your truth. As if everybody could just pick their own. Let's just go to a cafeteria. I'll believe this and this and this. I don't like that, so that's not going to be true for me. And that, that's the way most people live. Well, uh, even while staring truth in the face, the epitome the embodiment of truth, Pilate said, what is truth? And consequently, he never found it, did he? There, Judas kissed the door to heaven and went to hell. The truth is in our midst. You're holding it, many of you, in your lap as, as I speak today. That's the truth. So God hates pride. He hates lying. And then thirdly, the Bible tells us the Lord hates the deadly hand. Verse 17, hands that shed innocent blood. Exodus 20, verse 13, Thou shalt not kill. Jesus said in John eight forty four that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. So the sin that the, the, the son of Adam and Eve formed, uh, performed there in the garden, was, he was inspired to do it by, by Satan. He is the, was a murderer from the beginning. Little did Eve realize when she listened to Satan's lies that her firstborn son would kill her second-born son. Oh, yes, death is coming, Eve. And it's going to come gruesomely, horribly to your home, not just spiritually, which is the worst part of it, spiritual deadness, but physical deadness that will break your heart. Eve is coming. Think of all the, the number of murders that have taken place from that time until this. The papers tell us, that Birmingham is one of the most violent cities in our nation. That grieves me. I love our city. This is home. When I read that, it just absolutely grieves me that, that we would be notorious or famous for a wrong reason. Over 39 million abortions have taken place since the Roe versus Wade ruling by our Supreme Court in 1973. Well, heaven will be populated with people uh, who, little ones, think of that, that many we know of. Think of all the others from the beginning of time that, that are beholding their father's face. That's over 39 million murdered babies in the United States alone. That doesn't take into account the number of babies killed by abortion prior to 1973 and in other places. But turn your eyes from the innocent blood of, of murdered victims to the innocent blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the most horrible crime that ever took place, and we are guilty of it. When I mention those 
results of murder and abortion. It caused a, a chill in this room I could sense. But oh, the chill that ought to come across us when we consider the murder of our Lord and to know that we were responsible. Those hands that touched the, the heads of little children and blessed them. What a beautiful picture when the Lord gathered little children and said, let, let them come to me. He's, the handlers were saying, get him out of get that snotty nose brat out of the way. This is the Lord here. He's doing his business. No, bring them to me. I want to see them. I want to bless them. Those hands that touched those little toe-headed boys and the little curls of the girls, and he held them in his lap, those hands were outstretched and nailed for our sin. Those hands that touched people and healed them, that raised them from the dead. Those hands that took a little boy's lunch and he blessed it and broke that little boy's lunch and fed thousands. Even as he was being arrested, his hand touched the severed ear of a Roman soldier. Would you and I have been so thoughtful, even if we'd had the power to restore the, the wound of someone who was about to be responsible for our own physical death? And he tenderly restored it miraculously, placed the man's ear back and made it whole. Those hands, the innocent hands that never shed blood were wounded for our murder of all the, the sin that we've committed. But as when we've studied the Ten Commandments, I'll remind you there's more to murder than just physical murder. There's murder with words. Slander murders people's reputations. It kills their characters. And how guilty are people are of murder in other ways that may not be physically taking their life but they've destroyed them. They've ruined their, their reputations. They've ruined their lives by their careless words or their deceptive words or the spreading the gossip about them. May we never, never be a part in, the, in that kind of thing. The Scripture says, speak evil of no man. Well, the fourth sin here, we see these deadly sins. These are horrible sins, aren't they? The fourth sin mentioned in verse 18 tells us that the Lord hates the depraved heart. The heart that devises, that schemes, that comes up with wicked imaginations. We're constantly astounded by what people come up with, don't we? The ways they devise to sin. We marvel at technology and inventions, but with that marveling, with all of that good, there are daily new ways of, of robbing of people's uh, identities and wealth and and all kinds of the, the, the ways that sin can be accomplished are just more and more and compounded far more than, than the writer of the book of Proverbs in his day. Sin originates not in the hand. A, a, a hand does not pull the trigger of a gun by itself, does it? We don't say, you can put my hand to death or put my hand in prison. That's what did the murder. Of course not. Sin originates not in the hand, but in the heart, and not in the action. What we need to remember is we're killing sin, which, by the way, we're to continue to do even after salvation, aren't we? Mortify your members. Put to death those things in your life. Starve them of life. Take away from them the opportunity of ever becoming sin. That's a daily, ongoing, moment-by-moment business that, that we attend to and cooperate with the Holy Spirit in putting sin out of our lives. Sin originates not in the hand that does it, but in the heart that devised it. Adam lived for 930 years. That's a long life, isn't it? No, he didn't drop dead immediately. He didn't just live to be 70. 
or 90, which would have been in our estimation a ripe old age, but 930 years, something we cannot even imagine. We must feel that, that the aging process was greatly slowed down in, in, in the reverse than it is today. But even at that, 930 years, long enough to see the horrors and the results of his choice. Think of all the, the generations that Adam saw. All the, the sin lived out in the lives of his descendants, enough to see the depravity of man. We believe that the Bible teaches the absolute and total depravity of man, of every man. And by the time the Lord decided to judge the sins of the earth in Genesis chapter 6, he says, the Bible says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's all he did was think of new ways to sin and how to get uh, to, to sin. Only evil continually. What an indictment. Satan rejoices over the depravity of man. It's his great uh, achievement, if you will. He is building a kingdom, an anti-kingdom, of, against righteousness and goodness and wholesomeness and cleanness. He has the opposite of everything that the Scripture tells us that God is for and wants and will restore in time to come. A new heaven, new earth, with people populated with people who will be likened to the Lord. But Satan, and we live in the midst of the opposite of that. It will only grow worse and worse until the man of sin is revealed, the Antichrist, the opposite of Christ, who will rule for a while here on earth. The destructive power of, of the sins that, that men come up with. The, think of the, the putridness of pornography and the, the, the destructive power of illicit drugs and all that we could go on and on down a list of the, of the abomination that the heart has conceived and is continually comes up with. There are drugs and, and things available today that Adam didn't know anything about. It's just compounded. Noah may have gotten drunken, and it was not, we're not excusing it, but think of the, the millions of ways that people can, can, can sin at this day and time, and who knows what it will be before the Lord comes back again. Jesus told about the depravity of the human heart in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. Have you ever heard somebody say a foul word or something, and they look at you and say, oh, excuse me, I don't know where that came from. Of course you do. It came from your heart. It, that deceitful heart, the things that come out of the mouth come forth from the heart. That's where they must be killed in the heart before they ever become words. The thoughts must be killed in the heart before they ever become actions. And they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts. These are the words of our Lord. False witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. The context was, they came to the Lord and said, We have observed that your disciples do not do the ceremonial washings. And this wasn't just washing your hands for cleanness. They bring this basin. It was a great rite and show off. It was a great ritual of of ceremonial washings. And, uh, you know, you've been out and sometimes you might have wished you could wash your hands, but you were hungry. The food was there and you ate it. And that, but they were criticizing the Lord's disciples for not doing the ceremonial and public washing so everybody could see how clean and nice and good they were. And he says, the least of our concern is whether somebody eats with unwashing hands. 
look in the heart of these horrible uh, uh, things that, that are there. In contrast to the depraved heart of man, we see the guileless, pure heart of our Savior. Hebrews 7 describes him as our high priest. He is able, therefore, to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's doing that just now. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, blameless, undefiled. There's no spot or speck of sin in him. Undefiled. We can't we can imagine something being undefiled. Don't you love to see in rare times when you wake up and there's a snow and it covers everything? Before people begin to make snowballs, fights, and snowmen and ski and, and ride all over or walk in it, you just look out and it's absolutely as if God is has just made everything perfect and level and beautiful and sparkling and there's no mar, there's not there's nothing to it but but beauty and pureness and, and glistening. But he he's harmless, undefiled. We can't think of anything hardly that's undefiled. Separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens, for he hath made him to be sin for us, Corinthians tells us, Second Corinthians five twenty one, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The fifth thing that the Lord hates is the delinquent foot. What do you mean by that? The delinquent foot. Verse 18 says, feet that be swift in running to mischief. Now, mischief here, please, this is not Johnny putting a tack in Susie's chair in the fifth grade or putting Elmer's glue in her hair and she can't put a comb through it. I'm telling on some antics of a fifth grade boy I knew at one time and got in trouble with. Who are bad as they are, we, we say, oh, Johnny's or Chris is being mischievous. This mischievous in the Bible is never something where we go, oh, that's, you know, he shouldn't have done that. A water balloon over the teacher's head or something like that. You know, we, we think, oh, that's bad, but, you know, that's just, John, you know, boys will be boys. That's not what we're talking about. Mischief in the Bible is calamity. Wretchedness. When you see that word, we've made it become something cuter or not so bad, but it's absolute evil. Calamity, wretchedness, or we could say feet that run to commit crime, to wreak havoc in the lives of others. Think about it when someone commits a crime in that moment of passion or because they want to rob this house and they never meant to kill the person who they didn't think was at home, think of all the, the events that are put in motion that will be destructive and horrible in those families' lives forever and ever and ever. Just because someone decided to pull off something. And maybe they didn't intend for it to go that far. We never know how far sin is going to go, do we? We never... Satan doesn't make deals where you can just rob this house and that's all that will happen. He doesn't make any guarantees. But I can guarantee you this, sin always has consequences. And you can make choices, but you can't choose the consequences of those choices. He doesn't play fair. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that in your own life? Sin never pays off. It never works out like you think it's going to. When Satan appeared before God in Job chapter 1 in answer to God's question, where are you coming from? He said, from going to and fro in the earth, walking down in it. That's what he does, doesn't he? Why? Seeking whom he can devour. Seeking who has their armor off. Seeking who doesn't have the shield of faith up that can quench all the fire darts of the wicked one. Watching, examining, seeing, 
Our Lord Jesus was just the opposite. Acts 10 verse 38 tells us that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing it, all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Satan seeks whom he may devour. Jesus seeks who he can bless. The sixth thing that the Lord hates is a dishonest witness. Look in verse 19. The false witness that speaketh lies. In contrast, the Holy Spirit says of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, that he is the faithful witness. All that he says is faithful and true. Satan tried to use false witness to secure the death of Christ. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 60, it says that many false witnesses came. Think of all the, the faithful witnesses that, that could have testified for him. Oh, they could have found hundreds, yea, thousands of people who could have testified for them. But they had to scrounge up some false witnesses. Think of the, the ten lepers who were healed. Don't you think they'd have a story to tell? Think of Peter's mother-in-law who was raised. Think of Jairus' daughter. Or Lazarus. Go ask Lazarus. Or ask the man uh, who said, I don't know. You can call him what you want. All I know, I was blind, but now I see. I did nothing. I was born this way. I did nothing, but I, I can see for the first time in my life. Think about the Gadarene demoniac who, who spent his life running and living and feeding among the, the tombs and cutting himself, and, and he could not be contained or clothed. And there he is clothed and in his right mind, sitting on the front row uh, like a, you know, the most educated person in the group. Ask him about what Jesus Christ can do. What about the woman at the well? who said he looked right in my heart and told everything there was to know about me. But they did not find those witnesses who could give a good witness. Oh, may we be good and faithful witnesses. Do you see how important it is to witness on our Lord's behalf every opportunity that we have? We ought to speak up for our Savior and give a good word, not only by our words but our lives, that there is a God in heaven and this is worth living for. And lastly, we see deliberate a deliberate meddler. Now this, you might think, is not so bad. I mean, if it is if it's about us. If someone's sowing discord about us or our business or our reputation, that's bad. But we wouldn't really put it in here, would we? I mean, humanly speaking, if we were making a list with murder and, and all these other things. Verse 19, I want it to sink in deep into our hearts and minds because this is something very common among believers. And it's with these horrible, despicable, putrid sins. He that sows discord among brethren. Did you hear about Brother So-and-so? I wonder why the preacher did that. Is he just out? Then it falls. I wonder why Brother So-and-so didn't shake my hand. Why did they do this? You didn't do it. And it's all this innuendo. Satan stirred up Cain, didn't he, against Abel. He stirred up Ishmael against Isaac. Esau against Jacob. The sons of Jacob against Joseph. He loves that kind of stuff. He's, that's what he delights in. That's what he's best at, sowing discord, not among enemies, but among brethren. Jesus is the great reconciler. Let me ask you, are you a reconciler of brethren, or do you sow discord among the brethren? Now, not many of us would purposely put ourselves in that category, but I want you to know that we all can be and are from time to time a raised eyebrow, uh, a withholding of affection toward a brother or sister that we may think have wronged us. The Bible tells us in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good, how 
pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's a prized possession that the Lord puts upon it. Abraham said to Lot, remember when their herdsmen got got at it and it caused a problem between Abraham and Lot? He said, listen, let's settle this. Why? We be brethren. We're brethren. And that's the rule of how we settle all of our differences. And there will be differences. There will be wrongs. You can't live in close proximity with a husband or wife or children or as fellow church members without being hurt or wronged or things happening. Why? Because we're sinners. That's not the point. These offenses will come, but woe to him by whom the offenses come, our Lord said. This is our high calling. Oh, we're to preach the gospel, we're to witness, but we are to be not sowers of discord among brethren, but exhorting and encouraging and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Part of the reason we're assembled together today is to praise our great Savior, but to encourage one another and to exhort one another and to shake one another's hands. I'm praying for you. God bless you. How can I help you? Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Slander is purposefully repeating information to try to tear down the reputation of another. And there's so many things that I could say here, but I just want to ask with a series of questions when we're tempted to pass along something about a brother. Is it true? Is it necessary? Would I want it be said about me even if it were true? Is it being said to the right person? Is the person I'm repeating this to, do they need, are they the one or ones that can handle and, and straighten this thing out and fix it. An old writer has said, there's an accursed thing. It works oftentimes by other, other means than words. By a look or a shrug of the shoulders, it levels its poisoned arrows. It has broken many a virtuous heart and stained many a virtuous reputation. It has knotted away many a good name and winked into existence a host of suspicions that have gathered round and crushed the most chaste and virtuous of our kind. It often works in the dark, and generally under the mask of truthfulness and love. Well, these are the seven deadly sins, aren't they? And may they not be once named among us. Let us pray. Now, Lord, this is your word. Take it and, and teach it to every heart, especially the teacher of it. I pray in my own heart and life. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.